0: Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 51, and uh, it's really a wonderful psalm, so you can follow along in your bulletin as I read it aloud. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood-guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, let's pray for a moment and ask God to bless his time. Uh, God, your words are so precious and perhaps um, these words are not only challenging but so sweet because they drip with uh, a sense of a broken and contrite heart and they drip with mercy and grace that comes from you. As we reflect on this prayer of David, we do ask God that you would open only not only our minds but especially penetrate our hearts that we might feel these words and the reality of these words as we hear from your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This fall, we are spending uh, the entire season looking at prayers in the Bible because one of our spiritual goals as a church, as a congregation, is to grow in the area of prayer. And we do have a prayer meeting every other Wednesday night, and I'm hoping that many of us can take a, make an, an effort to come out and to pray together because prayer is, I think, good for our souls. It fills our souls, and it also has the ability and the power to really form our hearts around the things of God. Now today, what we're going to do is we're, gonna look, we're going to look at a prayer from David, which is a prayer of repentance, and if there is any kind of prayer that we need, both collectively and individually, it is a prayer of repentance. Collectively, without repentance, I don't think there's much hope for things like unity and things like reconciliation. Uh, if you watch the news, and you know, the news for the last couple of weeks has uh, been very polarizing, and there's been a lot of animosity Uh, If you watch the news, uh, you know, it's very obvious that there's very sharp divisions and there's a lot of animosity and perhaps even hatred for the quote-unquote other. And you know what usually happens is uh, the other side, regardless of whatever issue or whatever thing you think about, the other side oftentimes gets demonized. And when the other side gets demonized, usually we feel a little bit more self-righteous about the things that we believe or hold on to. And uh, we don't really have this meaningful reflection of perhaps what may, what may be wrong with me or what might be wrong with us. And self-righteousness and a lack of meaningful ref- reflection on what may be wrong with me or what may be wrong with us, that's actually a really good recipe for division, whether it's in interpersonal relationships on the ground level or just kind of these macro-level relationships between groups of people. And I think repentance has the power to really keep us sober with respect to ourselves I think it can help us uh, not demonize the other so quickly because we are so keenly aware that we actually share the same uh, struggles and the same sins if we look deep enough within our own hearts. Now, individually without repentance, there is not much hope for transformation and for supreme joy martin lloyd jones was a british preacher and he himself struggled with depression and i'm not talking about the clinical kind uh, but just kind of a a sadness and a down feeling down all the time and a discouragement and you know what his recipe was for the depressed christian the kind of christian who feels like that his recipe was repent why because repent is ultimately the path that leads to greater joy and you know it's a very counterintuitive way of thinking especially for the modern world because uh We hear from modern society, don't dwell on the negative. Don't dwell on your sin because what that's going to do is that's going to inflict guilt, and guilt is going to inflict some psychological damage. But no, what you need to do is you just need to think positive thoughts about yourself and see yourself as a good person, and that's where we draw things like confidence from. And the reason to dwell on sin Uh, is not, according to the Christian perspective, it's not really to be crushed by the weight of guilt, but it's actually the exact opposite. The purpose is actually to encounter a gracious and merciful and loving God who is willing to forgive us for our sin through the atoning work of Christ, and it's through that encounter where we experience deep joy. Not only that, but repentance, I think, has the power to make our faith feel real, I don't know if you struggle with this, but uh, I was reading a book this past week about faith in a secular age, which perfectly describes at least New York City. And much of the way that the author talks about faith, especially in a modern Western culture, it did feel very familiar. Even even to me, it felt very familiar. And what he says is this: you know, many people, for many people, faith is merely uh, another identity that you project onto the world. And so there is this growing separation of what one believes, and how one lives. And they're kind of growing more and more separated. The challenge then, I think, is when that happens, faith doesn't feel real. Uh, But rather, it feels just kind of like another identity that you show to people, that you project to the world, either on Sunday or when you meet with other church people. Uh, But then inwardly, I think, it doesn't feel real because there is no power behind that kind of faith. You know, there's a philosopher that has helped me over the years I've talked about him before. His name is Charles Taylor. And uh, one of the things that he says about uh, modern people in the secular age is we have buffered ourselves. What he means by that is when we imagine ourselves, uh, we imagine ourselves to be kind of somewhat insulated from external forces outside of our own mind and our own feelings. And that's what tends to happen in a hyper individualistic society. And if we're buffered, you can kind of see why civil discourse is something that is hard to do, especially with somebody who's the other, when you're buffered, and you are the only one who, I guess, can uh, change your own mind about certain things. And of course, technology has a role in that, and it kind of exasperates the effect of this, of the buffered self, because it allows us to focus less on the flourishing of other people, and it draws us in towards focusing more on ourselves and how people view us, and how we project ourselves, and how we ourselves can flourish. Now, the impact that that has on faith is this. We can potentially say we believe in God, believe in the Bible, believe in the reality of sin, believe even in the truth of the gospel, and that may still have very little impact in terms of uh, penetrating ourselves because we're so buffered from external forces and uh, let me just give you an example of this, what the author gives an example. You know, he says he, he one time worked at a camp with high school felons. And the population of this camp were young people who had come out of gang cultures, who had gone through uh, being arrested, who had gone through court and so forth. And so I guess there was this English camp, and he was uh, serving these uh, folks and trying to teach them English, English and just kind of interacting with them. And what the author notices, you know, many of these young people who uh, come from gang cultures, they believe in God, and they even genuinely express their remorse for some of the things that they have done. They they had the knowledge. They knew, I'm a sinner, and I know that I can potentially face God's judgment one day for all the things that I've done. But then in the very next moment, after confessing some of these things— They just proudly exchange stories about violence, about people that they've hurt, about uh, drugs, about money that they've made, about sexual encounters, as if what they believed about God or what they just said they believed about God really had no effect or impact on them as a person. Now, even though you may not be part of uh, gang culture, I do think that many people in uh, the church can kind of relate to that. There is a sense where we might say, I do believe in God, I believe in all the right doctrines, and yet... That belief doesn't necessarily translate into personal experience. We say we believe in God, but maybe that belief has nothing to do with our finances, nothing to do with how we conduct ourselves at work, how we treat people, our sexual conduct, and so forth and so forth. So the question, I think, is if all of this is true, if the philosopher is true, if we are buffered, the question is how do we penetrate the buffered self? How does faith penetrate our hearts? How does faith become authentic? And I think part of the answer is actually repentance, repentant prayer. Now, interestingly, I think David also had the same experience as some of these high school gang members with respect to how he experienced his faith. I think there was a buffer around him as well. You know, Psalm 51, uh, it was written by David and You know, it's unlike many of the other psalms in that it actually tells us the context in which the psalm was written. Uh, It's not printed in the bulletin, but if you actually look at the Hebrew Bible, it tells us the story behind the psalm. There's a title in the psalm, and it tells us that it was written when Nathan the prophet went to David and confronted David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. It's a famous story that you can read about in 2 Samuel, but just in case you're not familiar with it, let me briefly summarize it. David, he notices a beautiful woman bathing on a roof and uh, this woman her name is Bathsheba but Bathsheba she's married she's married to a man named Uriah and what David does is he sends for Bathsheba and they end up sleeping together and David commits adultery with another man's wife if that weren't bad enough you know what he does he plots to have her husband Uriah killed in battle by sending him to the front lines where the battle would be the most fierce not only that David is king, therefore, what is he doing in Jerusalem? Why is he not with his army as a king should be? So on many levels, David has failed. Not only that, actually, uh, you know, when Uriah comes back from battle, he doesn't go home. And do you know why he doesn't go home? Because according to uh, the law, when you are in holy war, you're not supposed to have uh, sexual Uh, Encounters, because then you would be ceremonially unclean. So you're right. He doesn't even go home to his wife. He avoids going home to his wife because he wants to remain ceremonially pure according to Jewish law. So you have these multiple levels in which David messes up. And you would think after all the evil that he has done, he would be pretty keenly aware, oh man, I really messed up, right? But he is oblivious to it. Oblivious to it. How do we know that? God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David, and the way Nathan confronts David, he tells a story, and he says, David, one time there was these two men in a certain city. One man was very rich, one man was very poor. The rich man, he had many flocks and many animals. The poor man, he only had one lamb. The poor man bought the lamb with his own money, raised it with love and care. It grew up with him and his children, and it used to lie in the man's arms. So It kind of feels more like a pet, right, (laughs) than, than just kind of livestock. Now a traveler came, and the rich man was unwilling to use one of his own herds for the traveler. So what does this rich man do? He ends up taking the poor man's single lamb. And after David hears the story, he gets angry. He's like, that's messed up. How does that rich man take that poor man's lamb? That is so messed up. You know what this man deserves? He deserves to die for doing that. And Nathan says, David, you're that man, right? Wake up. That's you. And that's when David is cut to the heart, and that's where Psalm 51 comes out, out of that experience, right? You see, it is entirely possible to know God and say we believe in God and believe all the right doctrines, and yet be completely unaffected by the faith we claim to have in God. We see that in David, completely unaware of the evil that he has done. But what has changed is that David all of a sudden becomes keenly aware of his sin against God, and he is brought to a place of repentance. He is cut to the heart, and he repents for the evil that he has done. And I think that is how the buffer gets penetrated. I think that's when faith becomes real and authentic and not simply something that we project to the world as if it's just one identity out of many identities. And so, friends... We need to repent. We need to repent. Our faith depends upon it. We need to experience uh, the emotions that are associated when we come to this realization of the reality of our sin. Not for the purpose of just feeling bad about ourselves or being crushed by guilt. Because you know what that leads to? That leads to counterfeit forms of repentance and the forms of self-pity. But we need to repent so that the reality of who God is and what he has done in Christ actually disrupts our lives and disrupts how we experience and live out our lives. You know, in the past, I've actually preached multiple sermons on this one psalm just because it is so rich. But obviously, I can't do that today. And uh, so we're just going to look briefly at the psalm and walk through it. And I just want to give a simple outline in terms of how David prays. And perhaps this can guide our repentance as well. David basically looks in three different directions through his repentance. He looks out, he looks in, and he looks up, and we'll look at those three things. First thing, David, he he looks out, and by looking out, here's what I mean. He looks at the sin that he uh, committed publicly. He looks at the sin that is that is external, the sin that other people can see he has committed. Uh, it's not necessarily the sin that is simply inside of his heart because It's something that can be identified by somebody like Nathan the prophet. And even though the actual psalm doesn't mention any specific uh, sins, the the title of the psalm tells us the context of the psalm and what David did, and so the psalm itself is telling us that David's sin was very public. Now, part of repentance, I think, means that we have to look and see the sin that other people can see in us or the sin that we're (laughs) committing. Now, maybe that sounds obvious to some people, but I do think we have a tendency to internalize. We internalize our sin, and we relegate it to the heart alone, and therefore we don't really repent of external sins that we do now, there's a pastor named Jack Miller, and he says you know, we have to repent not only for root sins, but we have to repent for branch sins, the things that can be seen. Those are things that we have to repent for. So it's not enough to just repent for greed as like a general concept, but we need to also repent for money that we stole or money that we withheld in dishonest ways. Uh, it's not enough to repent for pride in our heart, but we have to repent for the ways that we have mistreated people or have been condescending to people. Uh, and the reason I make that point is, I do think it's actually easier to confess and repent of sins that are res- reside within our heart, because it makes sin feel a little bit more abstract and not as personally connected to us. Everyone can say, "I struggle with greed," just like everyone else, and it doesn't seem as bad as saying, "I stole some money." Everyone can say, eh, "I struggle with lust," just like everyone else. It's much harder to say, "Hey." I struggle with pornography or I had a one-night stand the other night. You know, if I were David, I would much rather say, ah, I struggle with lust in my heart rather than saying, ah, I slept with another man's wife and I got her pregnant. I would much rather say, I struggle with loving people rather than saying, yeah, I sent you right to the front lines and got him killed, right? What's harder? I think sometimes repenting for external sin actually helps us understand the gravity of our sin, right? But, you know, obviously we can't stop there in terms of our repentance, and we we do have to go deeper with respect to our repentance, and therefore we have to look in. We have to look at the root sins as well. Sin is deep-rooted, and even though our external behaviors may change, sometimes the the sin can actually still be there. Just because uh, someone, you don't sleep with another man's wife, doesn't mean that you don't commit sins of lust in your heart, And those have to be rooted out and repented for as well. You see, when we look at this psalm, David, he is surely looking at his sin as external acts, but he's also looking deeper. He's looking inside of his heart within himself. He's looking at the things that might not be visible to other people. Uh, Look at verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. I think here we see that God is not simply delighting in our external actions, but God also looks at the intentions. God looks at the heart. He's not simply looking for truth to come out of our lips, but he is looking for whether that truth resides within our hearts. And this leads him to making the right petitions before God. David says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And notice, what is he asking for? He's not saying, God, change my behavior, change the externals of who I am. He doesn't say, God, please let me never take another man's wife again. He doesn't say, please let me never have an innocent man killed again. No, he says, create in me a clean heart. He knows that his sin is deeper than what he did. He knows that ultimately what he needs is not reformation of behavior, but what he needs is a clean heart and a right spirit to be made new from the inside out. Just look at his response of worship in verses 16 and 17. It's it's not about external practice, friends. Uh, Perhaps you know this, but look, you come here on Sundays. It's not just about coming here on Sundays. David says that God will not delight in sacrifice or be pleased with a burnt offering. Rather, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, this doesn't mean that the external things don't matter at all, but what it does mean is the internal matters, that God cares about that which is inside. He is not looking for the person who has it all together on the outside and kind of walks in, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the spiritual man or the spiritual woman, right? That's not what he's looking for when we come here and worship. He is looking for the person whose heart is broken, whose heart is contrite, who is in a position to offer this genuine expression of worship and gratitude for who God is and what he has done through his grace, through his love, and through his mercy And so how do we get there? How do we get there? We have to look up. This is the last part of repentance. We have to look up in our repentance. And David, he does this in a couple ways. First, he looks up, and because he looks up, he is keenly aware of his standing before God. He is keenly aware of his sin before God. Verse 4, he says this, against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, what's really interesting there, especially because we have the context of the psalm, uh, you know, when, Uriah, when he had Uriah killed, wasn't that a sin against Uriah, right? Maybe a sin against his family or people he, he cared for Uriah. Why, why would David say to God, against you, and you only have I sinned. Why doesn't he say against you and Bathsheba and Uriah and all the people that I am ruling have I sinned against? But no, he comes to God and he says, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. I think he says that because God is ultimately the one who created him. God is the one who ultimately appointed him to be king over the people. God is the one who gave him his vocation. God is the one who helped him defeat Goliath. God is the one who saved him from his enemies and preserved his life. And what did David do with that? What did David do with that life that God has given to him? He betrayed the very desire and the purpose of God for his life by doing something that was ultimately self-serving and wicked and evil. It's one thing to steal money. It's another thing to steal money from your parents, right? You feel bad about stealing money, but you know, when you steal money from the very people who not only gave you life, but the very people who may have supported you throughout your life, there's another dimension, I think, in terms of what you have done and the ways that you have offended them. You see, David, he looks up and he is floored by his sin because of who God is and ultimately what God has done for David. David goes so far as to say that God would be justified and blameless if he were to judge him. If you don't get to a point in your repentance where you say, God, you would actually be justified if you destroyed me because of my sin against you, there's probably something missing in your repentance. Uh, It could mean that you're not looking up, you're not seeing the holiness of God, the holy standards of God, and therefore the depth of your depravity. And if you can't see the depth of your depravity, then guess what? Grace mercy, love, the sweetness of all of that will never taste as sweet as it ought. You will never taste the power of God because you'll never be transformed. You'll continue to have that buffer around yourself and your faith will never penetrate who you are. And the best thing you can do is project your faith as one identity of many, but you won't experience power, you won't experience peace, you won't experience joy. When you look up, You ought to be floored by your sin before a holy God. But at the same time, when you look up, you see where mercy and grace and forgiveness ultimately flow from. Look at some of the things that David is pleading for. Starting in verse 7, he's asking to be made clean so he would be whiter than snow. Verse 8, he's asking his broken bones would rejoice. Verse 9, that God would blot out his iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence. What is he asking for here? He is not asking for another chance to make things right. He is not asking for an opportunity to prove himself. What is he asking for here? I think if we take everything in its entirety, we could sum it up by saying this. David is asking to be made new, to be made new. The prayer to be made new is much deeper than the prayer to become a better person. If you want to become a better person, then you just need Jesus to be your example. You just need Jesus to be a good teacher to learn from. But if you want to be made new, to be recreated, you're asking for something that you can't do yourself. And it requires a kind of power that is only found outside of ourselves. And where do we find that power? Specifically, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is David asking for here when he is asking for a clean heart? I think we can sum it up by saying he is asking for a resurrection, right? But the thing is, David doesn't experience the fulfillment of what he is asking for because that requires for Jesus to come and for his power to grant it to us. You know, I think we can say that David did experience some mercy, that David did experience some grace from God, I think we can say that David maybe got a little bit of a taste of what he is asking for in his prayer here. But I also think we can say that David only saw a foreshadow of the grace that is to come. And when Jesus comes, friends, the gospel that we believe in, that is actually when we see the fulfillment of this prayer right here. David wouldn't know it, but the only way that his prayer would be answered is if Jesus Christ would come and die upon a cross. The only way that we could be made clean, as David is asking for here, is if Jesus Christ takes upon our dirtiness. The only way we can rejoice is if Jesus' bones himself are broken and crushed for us. The only way that God would hide his face from our sins and blot out our iniquities is if his face is to turn away from his own son. The only way we would have a clean heart and not be cast away from the presence of God as if Jesus himself is cast away from the presence of his very own Father. That's what the cross is all about, friends. David could not know what he was asking for and what would have been required in order for these prayers to be answered. He probably couldn't imagine the length or the depth that God would go to show mercy upon his people according to his steadfast love. But guess what? We live on this side of the cross, and we know. We know what God has done in his Son, in Christ, in order to answer this very prayer that David is praying for here David knew what he needed was not simply reformation of behavior, but what he needed was newness. He needed resurrection. He needed a clean heart, a new heart, a new life. And in Christ, in his death and resurrection, we get that. We get that. You know, when was the last time you spent some time in repentance? And I don't mean, uh, you know, if you grew up in church and maybe your vision of it is like this, you know, this really emotional prayer meeting where everybody's crying and it doesn't have to look like that, but really, when was the last time you really looked out at your external sin, looked in in terms of your internal sin, and looked up at a holy God? When was the last time we were able to do that together as a church, corporately? You see, without a regular habit of repentance, I think we're, we're gonna go off the rails, and it's gonna be very subtle in terms of how we go off the rails, We're going to be much more divisive, much more entitled, and we're going to live out a very dull faith that lacks power. But if we devoted ourselves to a regular habit and pattern and lifestyle of repentance, there will be so much spiritual power behind that. You know, one of the commentaries I was reading, it summarizes the message of the Psalms like this. The walls of Zion, a symbol of the kingdom of God, can only be built by repentant sinners. Think about that. I think it's something that we need to think about as we seek to build the church to minister to people in New York City. Uh, It's not just about what we do externally, friends. It's not just about the programs that we run. It's not just about the words that we say or the things that we do, although, of course, those things matter. It's not just about getting the externals right, but it's about setting the right spiritual climate. And how do we facilitate the right spiritual climate? Well, when do revivals happen? (laughs) There's a pattern here. Revivals oftentimes happen when the people of God repent and are moved towards repentance. Where does spiritual power come from? Not through our gifts, not through our talents, but it's through repentance. And when we repent, when there is a movement of repentance, both individually and collectively, I do think there's spiritual power behind that. And I do think there's going to be more joy, more peace, more boldness and courage, more conviction in the goodness and in the power of God. May we do what David is doing here, whether you slept with a mother, another man's wife or not, <laughs> whether you had somebody killed or not. Um, both are bad, but if you did the latter, you probably should go to jail. But. <laughs> uh, regardless of what you think and how you compare yourselves to other people and whether uh, certain things are bad or not bad, look up, because before a holy God, before a holy God, none of us can stand, and all of us deserve judgment. Let's pray together.